down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 483 of the Survival Podcast. And I am uh, one day away from departing with the big red truck and the big white RV and heading off for about a week and a half to uh, chill out, relax, and uh, spend time with my wife. Uh, I want to let you know there, there may not be a show Friday. I've already recorded tomorrow's show and Thursday's show. I do have a listener guest, contri- uh, like a guest hosting uh, on Survival Firearms that will be coming on Monday next week. And then I'm not sure exactly when we'll get back and when we'll resume our regularly scheduled programming next week. But we won't go the whole week without a show. What I'm thinking about doing maybe is some mini shows while I'm on the road. Maybe little 20-minute uh, segments or something. Just letting you know what's going on out there and uh, checking in with you uh, to keep it from being completely empty. But this is a real vacation. So uh, as hard as I've worked, I've uh, I pounded out three shows yesterday. The one I did and two more, and uh, we got to start getting ready here to get out of here about noon. Uh, so uh, I'm going to knock this out, and uh, there just might be some days without some shows. Sorry, guys, I did what I could for you. Uh, three shows in one day. You Maybe you can hear my voice. It uh, It's tough to do three shows in one day. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and tell you what I am going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about 20 baby steps, I guess you'd call them, or 20 simple steps uh, toward preparedness. And I'll tell you what, if you complete all 20 of these, you're going to be pretty damn prepared, and none of them are that hard. I want to tell you before I go through the show, though, that these are not in order except for the first three. The first three I recommend you do first. The rest are not in order. I will tell you why they're not in any particular order when I get to the main part of the show. Before that, though, I do want to take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure this show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. I'd say 50 out of 52 weeks out of the year. Uh, we don't really go away that often, and when we do, we do try to leave some shows behind for you. Our sponsors help make that happen. Um, sponsor of the day number one, Common Sense Prep. What do you get at Common Sense Prep? You get common sense things for your preps. It'd be a great place maybe to go look for some of the things that we're going to talk about doing today. I think that's a great idea. In fact, and I'll tell you what, one of if you're kind of a permaculturist, one of the things you really want to look at is their uh, Waterhog H2O system. The other thing you might want to do is if you're an MSB member, check out their Paladin Press books, but don't buy them from the main site. Go to your MSB account, and you can get a 15% discount on all their Paladin Press books. And there's some pretty cool damn books in the Paladin Press uh, lineup. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals, to me, is the ultimate source of herbs, whether it's preparations or individual whole herbs or components for making herbal preparations myself. I've actually never seen such a wide and varied assortment of herbs. It's almost a little bit overwhelming, but guess what? If you have any questions, give them a call, 
and they will help you figure out what you need. And uh, if you're new, I mean, I think they're a great place to go for information, uh, not just product. And they'll be glad to help you out with that information so you can make the right product choices. Also, if you're MSB, guess what? Uh, these guys also support the Member Support Brigade. Uh, they give you 25% off uh, with their preferred members program. That costs $50 a year. But if you're MSB, all you do is make a phone call, uh, give them a code word that's in your MSB account uh, when you log in, and they will set you up with that 100% absolutely free, and you'll get 25% off everything you order from them ever from that point forward. Isn't that cool? All right. Um, that, that's it for our sponsors. I want to also remind you about our gear shop, shirts, hats, challenge coins, all kinds of cool stuff. French press mugs, if you don't have one yet, why not? They are so freaking cool. And uh, there's just a lot of cool stuff coming to the Members Brigade, even some new challenge coins that I'm going to be talking about Tiffany with while I'm away. And the gear shop is going to be redesigned and going to be more interactive so that you can tell us what you want to see next. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. Exclusive content, free videos, lots of discounts. That's all I'm going to say about it for today. Um, and I also do want to remind you guys, I am on vacation. By the time you're listening to this, assume my vacation has begun. It probably hasn't. I'm probably still working my ass off. But as far as email response times and things like that, they're in vacation mode, which means you might go as much as a week without a response. Probably won't happen, but it could. Folks, I need this recharge. Um, and I'm going to tell you one more time, I'm going to actually be taking vacation again later in August, taking two vacations at this point of the year before my son goes back to college uh, for one and just for my wife and me for this one we're doing now. And um, not apologizing for it because I think we're all due uh, some of those. I'm just explaining it so you know what's going on. With that, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the main topic of today's show, which are these 20 simple steps to basic preparedness. And as I said, the first three I suggest you start with. Uh, even if you're a long-term veteran prepper, I think you're going to find things here that can help you. And if you're new and feeling overwhelmed, I think this can really help you. But let's start out with why I didn't put these in order. Baby step one, do this. Baby step two, do that. Baby step three, do this. Baby step four, right? Like Dave Ramsey does with debt elimination. Well, <clears throat> because here's the reality. Your needs as a prepper are variable. If you are in debt, your method of getting out of that debt is the same whether you're in $100,000 or $10,000 or $5,000. The only thing that changes is the time, and the methodology is constant. When it comes to being prepared, there's a lot of things at play. Number one, if I'm sitting here in Dallas, Texas, uh, when I do one of my first steps is a risk assessment, I'm going to look and say tornadoes are a big threat to me. When I lived in Pennsylvania, there's a possibility of a tornado, but I didn't really worry about one that much, especially up on the mountains where I was at. So there's a geographic component uh, when it comes to this. But bigger uh, is what you're willing to do first. See, I don't. I, I love when somebody does one of these these things similar on a blog and says, "Here's 15 things to do today." You know, go out and buy this, this, and this, and then go do this, this, and this. And they they make great plans, and there's nothing wrong with them. But here's what I know happens: I know the majority of people read it, look at it, leave comments about how wonderful it is, and then they don't do it. They just don't do it. They, they two days later they've forgotten about that post or that forum post or that blog post or that article or whatever it was. It's a million miles gone. And I don't get on here and pour out my guts every day to you guys about being prepared so that it will be immediately forgotten. I want it to be acted upon. My show is about action, 
about things you can do. And it's the biggest compliment I get when I get an email or a phone call or meet somebody in person. They say, because of you, I am doing. Thinking's great. Doing's even better, though. So my view was if I put this together and set a hardcore order, that as soon as you got to the task that wasn't really what you felt like doing now, you probably wouldn't do it now. And since you didn't do it now, you wouldn't go to the next step, and it would be long forgotten, and we'd be getting on to another podcast that Jack talks about something we want to do, and we're going to do that. And then we stay mentally prepared, but physically unprepared in our homes. And I don't want any member of this audience to not be at least basically prepared if you had to stay in your house for a month and survive with what you have. I want you to be able to do that. So I put together these 20 items, and again, in no particular order, uh, just so that you can, you know, pick and choose, but keep working on them until the checklist is freaking done. So let's go ahead and kick it off. And as I did say, I do think you should, and you don't have to, right? I, I don't want to lock anybody into anything rigid. You know that my 10th tenant of modern survival philosophy is that my plan won't work for you. You have to take the things that I give you and the things that you get elsewhere and create your own plan. You have to own it. And if you don't own it, you won't follow it, you won't believe in it, you won't commit to it, you won't make it part of your life. This is not like uh, a diet that you do for a couple weeks and then go on about your business. This is changing the way that you live so that you have a more positive life today and tomorrow, no matter how bad things get or no matter how good things are. We don't put ourselves into a negative situation. The only way someone's going to commit to that is for them to believe in what they're doing 100%. And for them to do that, they have to have ownership in the creation and enactment of that plan. It's the only way it's going to work. But these first three, I think, will help you to structure things your own way. And that's why I'm suggesting that you do them. You don't, Again, you don't have to, but I really think you should. And when you hear how easy they are, you probably won't have a problem with it. You'll just have to get off your ass and do it. The first one I want you to do is I want you to keep a food log. Now, this is only the food that you eat in your home. I don't really care about McDonald's and Burger King if you go there, and you shouldn't, but if you do, it's not really on the food log. All I want you to do to do this is get yourself a pad of paper and sit it on the kitchen counter. And when mom makes dinner or dad cooks dinner, because, you know, dad's cooked dinner too. I cook dinner probably more than my wife does. I guarantee I do that anyway. Uh, I cook, she cleans the dishes. That's kind of our uh, our division of labor on that because I like to cook. But whenever anybody cooks uh, di dinner or lunch or breakfast or anything, I want you to just write down what was eaten. I'll write down, you know, Johnny ate two eggs and dad ate four or whatever. I just, you know, breakfast was six eggs and uh, nine pieces of bacon and... Uh, Four pieces of toast and butter. Right? Just write it down. Din you know, dinner was this, and you used a can of Rotel tomatoes for that, or a can of beans for this, or you know, did something. Whatever it is, you know, uh, two cups of macaroni. Whatever it is, just write it down. It doesn't have to be elegant. Don't do this in Excel. Don't make this complicated because you won't freaking do it if you do that. Just jot it down, almost like a grocery list. This is what it's going to become. I want you to do that for a minimum period of two weeks, and it's really a great idea if you just keep doing it. You know, until the book is full, and by that time you're probably done with that crap. Um, and, you know, you can go get a 50-cent notebook to do this with. It doesn't have to cost you a lot of money in a pen. I'm sure you can scrape one of those up. Just do this for a few weeks. What's going to happen is you're going to be able to now sit down in the future when you're planning your storage, and you're going to be able to go through that list, and all I'm going to want you to do is make another list. Everything on that list that can be stored without refrigeration or electricity, put on another list. Those are the items that you need to be storing. It's your primary storage items. 
Now, you can get into trying new things and coming up with new ideas later. That's a great idea. But for now, you're just trying to make a list of the things that we don't have to change anything about your life to address the need of having additional food. Because if that, and what I also want you to do is, if you go through that list for, let's say, a month, and an item is on that list four or more times, put a great big star next to it on your second list. Because that's an item that's used once a week or more. That's an item that not only do you use, obviously you like to use it, your family likes to eat it. So step one, a food log. Step two, you're going to have a little bit more of a problem doing, I think some, some folks are anyway. Um, <clears throat> it requires a little bit more discipline, and it requires an honest assessment of yourself, but what I want you to realize is I'm not asking you in any way, shape, or form to cut one expense out of your life yet. <clears throat> I'm not asking you to give anything up. I'm not asking you to do anything differently. I'm asking you to make notes in a notebook. I want you to keep a spending log, and if you're married, that means both spouses do it when they're away from home and not with each other. Uh, and when they're with each other as well, so at all times. So there's two if there's, because you're going to spend money when you're away from home and so is your spouse. I don't care if you're on an envelope system and you're doing it out of cash that you're allowed to spend. I don't care what you spend money on. Down to the electric bill. I want you to have in a notebook every dime you spend for a month. I'm not telling you to get, now, I know people right now are just like cringing at this, especially you credit card addicts. I mean, got to get rid of the credit cards, but I didn't even put it on this list. I'm going to make this list easy for you, okay? I just want you to record what you spend. A stick of gum, okay? A little cheap key ring for the kid out of the bubble gum machine on the way out of the grocery. If you spend it, write it down. I won't judge you. I'll never see it. You're going to judge yourself at your own time, in your own way, and of your own choosing. But there is so much unconscious spending in today's world, you will never get control of your economy, of your household, until you know where the money's going. And right now, most Americans, and probably you, do not. You know, you might have surplus. You might be doing good. You might save for retirement, save for savings, save for that. You might have lots of surplus. You still may not know where your money's going. Please do this for me. Please humor Jack. He gets crazy and rants sometimes, but he's actually a pretty smart dude. I promise you this. If you keep these two logs, it will improve your life. You don't have to do anything else that I tell you Keeping these two logs will change the way you think and you will make changes that are positive for your family and your life for yourself. If you do not do them, you will continue to let the river of life direct you without taking control. One more time, I'm not asking you to give anything up. I'm not telling you're wrong about anything you're doing with your money or your food or your diet. I'm just asking you to write it down and review it frequently. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, please do that for me. Step three, I want you to perform a risk assessment on both your life and your geography. A risk assessment of your life is about how much money do you have in the bank. This doesn't have to be complicated. Don't make it complicated or you won't do it. Just how much money do you have in the bank? How much money do you have in your retirement? If you had to get that money out now, how much would it cost you to get it out? How long could you live on everything if you lost your job and got no unemployment and you just had to do with what you had? Um, do you have life insurance? Do you have health insurance? I'm not saying go get life insurance and go get health insurance. Ask the questions. What are the consequences of these choices? 
How old are your kids? How much longer do you think they're going to be in the house? Do you plan to have any more? What is the state of your marriage? You know, do you need to work on it? Is it in great shape? Do you think it's in great shape when it's really not? Perform a risk assessment on your life. Perform a risk assessment on your geography. What is the unique things that threaten your geography? What are they? Uh, if you live on a coastal region in the south, uh, southeastern United States, then obviously things like hurricanes spring to mind. Western California, you know, Western United States like California, Oregon, and Washington, things like earthquakes and in certain areas, tsunamis spring to mind. Uh, there are volcanic threats in certain areas of the United States. There are tornadic, you know, events often in certain areas of the United States. Like me, I live in Tornado Alley. I have to take that as an assessment. Do you live high or low as far as elevation? What is your risk of flooding? And I can't just keep going on. I can do a whole show probably just on risk assessments. But you get the point. Evaluate your property, where you live, how you get to work, how you get home, the, the geographical specific risks to your area. These are going to help form your choices about what do I do next. Because one, at one point here I'm going to talk about getting an alternative heating source. If you live in San Antonio, that may not be as important to you as if you live in Duluth, uh, or not Duluth, that's Georgia, where was I thinking of? Uh, if, if you live in, in somewhere like, I don't know, South Dakota or Maine, right? Because the consequences of not having backup heating in San Antonio during the winter when it's the coldest might be being really cold, miserable, and angry, and the consequences of doing that in some place like South Dakota might be death. So it doesn't mean that you both don't need it. It just means that you might prioritize it differently because you live in different places. How ironic. How ironic that one-size-fits-all planning for preparedness doesn't fit everybody. That we each have to customize it, right? So I want you to perform that risk assessment of your life and geography. Get the food log together. Get the spending log together. By the time you do that, you'll start to find... You'll, you'll start asking yourself questions and finding your own answers. And it will be amazing what happens. Here's some of the things I suggest you do going forward from there. And again, from this point on, they're in no particular order. Step four, build a basic blackout kit. It is, a, it is a constant of the things that we're most likely to have to deal with. And I also think it's a very soft sell to a reluctant spouse, and it has a very high odds in the next 12 months of playing out in a way that makes you look like a genius. Here's what happens. You're talking to your wife or your husband, because I've talked to plenty of women that listen to this show that have reluctant husbands, that... Um, you know, about being prepared and having a little more food and water, and they think you're going off into a doomsday cult or something nonsensical like that. And you say, well, hey, I want to put together a blackout kit. Now, most spouses will go, a what? You go, blackout, I just want to have everything ready in case the lights go out. And they go, well, that, that, okay, that's reasonable, right? Okay, fine. I thought we had, well, we do, but it's all scattered. So let's just all put it in one place and see what we're missing. So, you know, candles, flashlights, an emergency radio, uh, a lighter so that you can light your candles, uh, and anything else that you can think of that would make a good component of your blackout kit. What would you want if the power goes out? This may even include some things that are, you know, electronic, like, uh, you know, keeping your Kindle charged in somewhere near your blackout. So you can read while the freaking power's out or whatever. Of course, the Kindle's kind of hard to read, but your iPhone, your iPhone application with the Kindle app, guys, I like that because I can read in the dark and not disturb my wife when she's uh, ready to sleep and I'm not. But you get my point. Maybe it's a couple decks of playing cards, something to do when the power's out, right? 
Um, maybe there's a notebook in there so you can uh, sit down and jot down things you wish was in there that you didn't realize you needed until the lights went out. Now, here's what's going to happen. For most Americans, sometime in the next 12 months, your power is going to go out. Some idiot's going to hit a pole. There's going to be a storm. There's going to be an ice storm. The idiots are going to draw, you know, the idiots of the power company aren't going to make enough power and your city's going to overdraw. Sooner or later, most Americans deal with power loss. And when the power goes out, you run your happy little ass back to uh, your little area and you get your blackout kit out and you start lighting candles and you don't say, I told you so, you just act. And all of a sudden, reluctant spouse becomes somewhat interested spouse. Hey, wait a minute. This didn't cost us a lot of money. And it paid off. And we're better off now than we would have been without it. And reluctant spouse becomes somewhat agreeable spouse. That's why I like blackout kits. Because even if you can't get the other things done with their cooperation, it's the one that will usually win them over because circumstances will eventually put you into a position to look really smart for putting it together. Power outages are a fact of life. Um, you also may want to toss a few of the uh, power failure lights uh, like Sylvania makes or some other manufacturers make. They look like little night lights. Plug them into your wall, and if the power goes out, they light up for you. Uh, ten, about ten bucks a piece, two or three of those, part of your blackout kit, even though they don't live in it. They'll help you get to the kit, find your way, not stub your toe, that kind of thing. Um, the next one is build a basic first aid kit. It's a uh, it's another one that I'm uh, a big a big believer that the reluctant spouse usually doesn't object to. Hey, we could be out in a kid skins his knee, one of us could get hurt, we're hurt, we're waiting even for an ambulance to come, the other person could take care of the, you know, with some basic first aid, we should know what's in it, how to use it. That's a hard thing if you care about your spouse to say no to. It really is. A first aid kit, that doesn't sound crazy. You know, we have one at work, right on the shop floor, we have one at work in the office, what have you. If we have a boat, most states require us to keep one in our boat. I mean, first aid kit. Easy, simple, hard to object to. Get it done. Uh, the next one uh, is what I call begin copy canning. Actually, Ron Hood is the one that turned me onto that term. But it's a very easy way to, even if the spouse is not agreeable, to trick the spouse into food storage. Because since you've kept your food journal and you know what you eat and you happen to eat, let's say, ranch style beans or Bush's barbecue baked beans, those are good, by the way. And uh, you used a can this week. And now you go back to the store. And instead of buying one can, you buy two. That's it. And then next week you use another can, and when you go back to the store, instead of buying one, you buy two. Now you have two in reserve. And if you keep doing that, after about four weeks, you have four in reserve. After eight weeks, maybe you're not, you know, you have eight in reserve. Maybe you start buying something totally different with your copy canning approach and you just go to one, one, one to one replacement. See, all of a sudden the pantry builds out and your spouse doesn't really freaking know how it happened. Now, hopefully you have a, a compli you know, a, a cooperative spouse and you're doing this together. This is a very soft sell as well. Hey, it's a couple extra cans of beans. It's a couple of, it's the stuff that's in the book on the counter I've been keeping. We use this stuff anyway. We're going to eat it anyway. We're going to buy it anyway. Just building up a little bit of extra. Another soft sell. But next thing you know, the, 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 the pantry is, is fulled out. And it's all with things that you eat because you kept the log first. And all of a sudden, you could go two, three weeks if you had to, maybe with a little bit of a bland diet, but everybody would eat, everybody's belly would be full, and everybody's nutritional basic requirements would be met. 
Isn't that cool? And the reluctant spouse really isn't even sure how it happened, but we've gotten to a place where we can take care of a blackout, feed ourselves for a few weeks, and uh, if something bad happens, we can at least render proper first aid. And again, reluctant spouse gone, huh, how the hell did that happen? And all of a sudden, because we've gotten that far, the reluctant spouse isn't so reluctant anymore. Because everything was painless up to this point, and honestly, they didn't have to do a lot And now they actually feel like maybe they should be doing something. Kind of cool, huh? And if you're by yourself, that doesn't apply, but these are still good steps to follow. Um, the next one I'm going to ask you to do is your choice. Remember, you can do this one last if you want to, but I think this would be a good time to do it. And that is I want you to cut two expenses out of your life. Just two. I didn't say cut the biggest ones. I didn't cut, say cut the most wasteful ones. By this point, you've been keeping your spending journal hopefully for a month or more. I want you to go through it, and it doesn't even have to be like a bill somebody sends you for it to be a recurring expense. I want you to just notice, what do you spend money on? And maybe you spend money five days a week on a $3 coffee at Starbucks. And I would tell you, to be fair to you, that if you cut that to four times a week, you've cut one recurring expense, Friday's purchase of a Starbucks coffee. Don't cheat and just cut two days and call that two cut expense cuts. You want to cut two, cut two. Cut as much of that as you want. Find two different places to cut a recurring expense. Maybe it's a magazine subscription that you don't really need anymore. Because you don't really read it. It just kind of sits on the coffee table. Maybe it's a trip to uh, the, the, you know, the, the convenience store, or not the convenience store, the, like the fast food restaurant once a week. You really, you know, you've kind of given up a lot of fast food, but you have that one little bit that you're still, maybe it's that. I don't know what it is. I want you to find two expenses and cut them. I don't care if you're debt free. I don't care if you're in debt. I still want you to find two expenses to cut. I promise you, unless you've done this before, if you've already done the cutting thing, you, you, you've done this. You can check it off the list. But examine it anyway. I think if you keep a spending log, what will happen is by the time you think it's time to cut, you'll look at the spending log and you'll realize, I already cut that, that, and that. I'm ahead. Because as soon as you become conscious of the spending, you begin to cut it. It's really a cool effect. And again, please remember, I'm not telling you what to cut. I'm not telling you what you're doing is wrong. I'm saying that I bet you, if you look with your own assessment at your own life, you'll find at least two things you can cut. I want you to take that money, and I want you to start putting it somewhere in a jar under your mattress. I don't care. I want you to each week or each month, whatever the recurrence of that expense was, is take that much, exactly that much cash and put it somewhere. And don't even consider it cash reserves. Just consider it like a slush fund. It's just money that's there. Try never to spend it and see what happens to that pile of money. When you watch it grow, two or three months, four months later, when you pull that jar out, open it up and count it and you feel it in your hands, you're going to go, oh, it's going to make an impact. Give it a shot. Give me a try on this one. The next one is, I want you to make sure you do build a basic bug out bag, a 72-hour kit. I won't go into that deep because there's entire episodes on it, and bug out bags can be elaborate or simple. I want you to at least have a simple one. Three days worth of food, three days worth of water, maybe not in the bag but with the bag, or available that's portable in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and the basic things that you would need, change of clothes, uh, any kind of documentation that you want to have with you, Everything that you need to survive for three days, I'm going to leave the bug out bag alone because if I start going into it, I will override the entire show with how to build a bug out bag. 
but I want you to have a basic one, and I don't care if you go around the house and find a couple old bags and use most of the things you already have to build your bug out bag. In fact, it's a great way to start out. I don't care if the initial food in your bag is some canned food that you start to realize, hey, this doesn't need to be cooked and this is easily opened, and you know, maybe you go to the store and buy a few packs of, uh, of instant soup mix and, and you build it down. I don't care how you do it. But I want you to have, for every member of your family, a bag that will support them for three days. And I want you to make sure you can put it on your back or pick it up and carry it and go at least a mile or two carrying it. If you can't do that, it's too heavy. Now, you might have a supplement bag, you know, a go bag or a bigger bag or something like that, that as long as you have a vehicle, that stuff goes with you. I want you to have something, though, that you could leave on foot with if you had to that will support you for three days. Minimum. So important. Because you don't know where you're going to be when disaster strikes. That bag lives in your vehicle when you go to work. Uh, if you go on vacation, you take it with you. That bag is your lifeline. It is designed not to go into the woods and live with. It is designed so that wherever you are, if you are in a point of danger, you can support yourself for three days on your way to a point of safety. All right? Let's leave that one go. Let's go on to the next one. I want you to make sure that you get some source of backup power, and in my notes I say any source. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you build your own backup power system. I'm a big fan of the Power Gnome EX. It has limits to duration, but hey, at least it's a power source. I don't care if it's as simple as you go out and get yourself a 400-watt or 750-watt power inverter, and you can plug that into your vehicle, run your vehicle, and produce power from your vehicle. I'm not saying that any of those things in and of themselves are sufficient, I'm saying they are a first step, and please do at least one of them. A small generator set can be had for a few hundred dollars, something with you know somewhere between uh, you know one to two uh, kilowatts of, of output. It's not going to run everything in your house, but it'll run some things. If you have a generator, make sure you have stabilized fuel to go with it. Enough stabilized fuel to run the generator at 50% of load per the manual for at least a week and a half. Stabilize that fuel and put it in multiple cans. And once a month, take one can off the end, dump it into your vehicle, put it in your vehicle, take it to the gas station, and the next time you fill your car, fill the can back up and put it in the front of the line. Do that once a month with your gas cans you store for your generator set. That will keep rotation. Your gas will never go bad. You're going to buy the gas anyway. All you're doing is basically increasing the size of the tank that you keep the gas in and then breaking the tank into components and keeping them in two different places. See it that way. See it simply as your car has a bigger tank, your truck has a bigger tank, but you're able to break a piece off and keep it in your shed. Do that. Have a backup power source because there, that's another one, first of all, that you're going to look like a genius sooner or later. When the power goes off for a day and you keep the freezer from losing all your meat, the reluctant spouse becomes more receptive. You're probably going to get the opportunity to do that at some point in your life. You really are. And if a bigger disaster hits, it could be really, really important. Generators save lives. I know it sounds crazy, but they do. Uh, there was uh, I had Johnny Max on the show, who runs the Self-Sufficient Homestead podcast, back when all he was doing was the Brew Crazy podcast. He told me that during one of their hurricanes, they had an infant baby in the house. And the heat after the hurricane was unbelievable. This was Rita, uh, the one that came in right after Katrina. And because they had a generator set, they were able to put a small window unit air conditioner in one room in the house, keep that one room climate controlled, and keep that baby out of the heat. May very well have saved that infant's life in the heat, you know, south of Houston in August in Texas. Um, 
there's there's really a value to having some sort of backup power. The next one, backup heat. I think it's very important that you have some sort of backup heat supply. If you have a fireplace, that's great. How much wood do you have? If you have, you know, two of those little stacks of wood from the grocery store, that'll keep you through 50% of one night, maybe, maybe, depending on the quality of that wood. Because a lot of times that wood from those little packs is like really crappy stuff. It doesn't burn long, hard, and hot. So you need to have enough wood. If if you have a fireplace and that's going to be your primary source of backup heating, you need no less, no less at minimum. And this is if you don't really use your fireplace. If it's only for backup heat, a full cord of split seasoned hardwood. A full cord, which is 4 by 4 by 8 if I remember correctly. Um, you probably should have a lot more, but that is a minimum. That will keep you going for probably close to a week. You also need to understand the limits of your fireplace. It pretty much will heat the room that the fireplace is in, not the rest of the house. Uh, something like a kerosene heater I talked about uh, recently is a good idea. Make sure there's a backup heating source uh, that does not depend on electricity. Next one is easy. It's going to involve getting your reluctant spouse off your back because your pantry is now overflowing. And uh, it's going to be easy and expensive and, and quite fun, actually, I think, for you to do. I want you to go out to Walmart or Target or any place like that, Home Depot, Lowe's, and they have these great big Rubbermaid tubs. The big ones are about 7.5 gallons, I believe they are. Sell for about $7, $8. We're to buy two of those. And I want you to start using your food log and your overflow from your pantry to fill both of them up to the very tip top with food that you eat and use anyway. And what I want you to start doing once they're full is I want you to put a big number one on one and two on the other and uh, so that you keep them separate. And I want you to keep separate items in each. It just make it easier for you to find them. So if you keep Rotel tomatoes because you like those and, and chili peppers in one, don't put them in both. Put it all in one location so that you bifurcate your two, uh, your two classes of food, so to speak. Not really classes, but varieties. Just make sure you do that. It's going to make your next part of your job a little bit easier. Whenever you take something out of your pantry, I want you to go out to your bin. I want you to pull the item out of your bin and try to stack them in a way that makes it easy to know what the oldest one is. Writing the date on your food might be a good idea. I want you to take the oldest thing, item in your bin... I want you to bring it into your pantry, and I want you to put it in the back of the line of the items that are in the pantry. Then I want you to put that item on your list, and on your list I want you to write next to your grocery list, bin number one or bin number two. When you bring the item home, instead of putting it into your pantry, go put it back in your bin. All you've done is made your pantry bigger. But you have two bins full of food that if you had to leave are pre-packed and ready to go. Get one more empty bin... Take one of your bins that you already have and put it inside it so it doesn't take up any additional space because it's empty. And odds are you can fit 90% of what's in your pantry into that one bin. If you really want to be slick, get two of them. And put you know one of each full bin inside the empty bin. Put the, the, the tops on the floor. Stack the first bin on the tops and then stack the second bin on the, the, the first bin. And then you have everything stored to space that only takes up two bins, but you have two empty bins ready to go if you have to evacuate to pack food and any other essential items. And they're all in one organized place. And you're rotating your food without even really thinking about it. It only takes work to set it up the first time. Odds are, if you have an average-sized pantry and two bins full of food, you can go 30 days. 
Again, you might have some blandness. You might get tired of eating Kraft macaroni and cheese, even though it showed up on your list a lot. I think that stuff's crap, by the way. Um, you know, you can make something much better with storing macaroni and getting uh, cheese powder from uh, Honeyville Grains, I think is the way to go there if you like macaroni and cheese. Uh, and you want storable version thereof. But whatever it is, at least it's available and ready. And it's so freaking simple. It is so freaking simple. Um, the next one is I want you to store a minimum of 50 gallons of water and more if you can. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how you pull it off. I don't care if it's in little bottles, big bottles, or a great big tank. I would tell you that it's probably a good idea. to You know those big cases of bottled water? You know the little ones that people carry around that are all trendy now? Having at least a few cases of that because they're easily, easily transportable and distributable. So even if you have a great big, you know, reserve tank of water for the house, it's probably a good idea to have a few cases of water bottles like that, unopened, sealed. Uh, they just store better that way. Their storage life, call it infinite, folks. Quit asking me when water goes bad. The water you drink today is recycled dinosaur pee, to put it in perspective for you. We have something called the water cycle. Water only goes bad if it's infected with something. Pure, clean, sealed water is, is good as long as the container it's held in is good. So don't worry about the water. Make sure you have lots of it. If you're, if you know, after a while, it does maybe, and some of these bottles get a little bit of a plastic-like taste. So just rotate it. You know, yank a case of the water out, buy a new case to replace it with, throw it in the refrigerator, and start drinking it. Um, there's no problem with you know pulling water out of your tap, or you know, if you want to filter it, filtering it, what have you, and putting it in the storage containers as well. Great idea. Low, cheap, cost way to do it. Uh, remember that you always have water available to you in your hot water heater. Uh, and what you want to do is, is, is get a what's called a low-pressure backflow preventer and have a plumber install that for you. That way, if you lose water pressure to the house, the water from the uh, hot water heater won't just fall out of the water heater back into the water lines. You can use the water out of the water heater. You want to clean your water heater once or twice a year to get the nasty gook and grossness out of it. And pretty much you have potable, drinkable water. And most people have you know 50 or larger gallon water uh, heaters, and there's stored water that nobody even thinks about. Uh, the water in the back side of your toilet bowl is fresh and clean. You can drink that if you have to. Um, there's also things that you can do, like they have, uh, there's liners you can buy, you line a bathtub with. And when you know there's a potential for the power to go out, you fill that liner up and it makes sure that, you know, the water doesn't leak out of the tub or the sewage doesn't come up out of the tub in a backup situation to contaminate your water and you can store as much water as your tub can hold. There's all types of ways to do this, but I'm going to tell you a minimum of 50 gallons of water, and it's probably not enough for a family of four. But at least it's something, and it's more than nothing. And remember that any other source of water that you're going to depend on is highly dependent upon um, whether or not the, uh, the, the source remains available in a disaster. And what I mean by that is I have an above-ground pool, and I know that that is very useful to me for reserve water supply. A large storm could damage the pool and cause the water loss. Uh, if I had an in-ground pool, that's not as likely, but the water supply could become contaminated beyond usability, even with a lot of purification methods, or require additional purification that I normally hadn't planned for. So you have to think about these things. But a minimum 50 gallons of water. Uh, next, I want you to acquire at least two emergency radios. 
Uh, I mentioned the Grundig FR200, I think, yesterday, uh, or maybe it was on a show that I've already done. They're all starting to blur together for me now. But uh, I think you should have a good emergency radio. Uh, the one from the Red Cross, it was yesterday. The one from the Red Cross I mentioned yesterday is also a good one. Um, but make sure you have at least two. Why? Two is one, one is none. Meaning if one fails, you still have one. If you have one and one fails, you have none. So two emergency radio options. Uh, I even have a pretty cool lantern I picked up at Target for like 20 bucks. Uh, that's one of those crank-up lanterns that has a built-in radio into it. It doesn't have great sound, but it's reasonable sound. At least you would know what was going on. It's an additional redundancy. So always look for things that do more than one job, as long as they do at least one job really well. Um, next, I want you to have some backup means of communications. I don't care if you go down to the store and buy a $20 set of those little two-way uh, family radio-type uh, radios, little walkie-talkies. Um, it's amazing what they can do for you in a situation where somebody has to go outside, somebody has to stay inside, and cell phone networks are down. Recently, I went out to Big Bend, and I didn't take my MERS radios with me, and I was really like, what the hell's wrong with you? Because when we were shooting the camo comparison, Brian and I did, those radios would have been a real help. Uh, because you know, there were times we were 100 yards apart and wind's blowing, and it's hard to communicate with each other. We got by with hand signals, and we're two military guys, so we you know, came up with a procedure really quick, and that, that made it flow. But there's a lot of situations where maybe you're not working with a partner that's, that's quite in sync with you like that, uh, or maybe you're dealing with someone that's even really a good, solid partner for an operation, but because they're in a stressful situation, they're not thinking as well, and radios would help. I love my MERS radios. I talk about them often, so I won't belay that here. Uh, but one way or another, I think you should have charged up, redundant backup communications that will allow you to communicate for at least a mile of distance. This is not uh, like being a ham or something like that. And that's fine if you want to do that, like become a ham, ham radio proficient. That's kind of a step up from the basic, though, as far as I'm concerned. CB radios in your vehicles, you want to do that? Great. But again, that's a step up. It's beyond where I'm going today. I'm talking about something basic that anybody with a few bucks could go out and do right now. Most of these things are that type of thing. So in that case, I'm saying get yourself a set. Uh, and if you have three people in the family, you probably want to get your hands on you know, at least three radios and maybe a fourth. Probably a good idea to have a head count of the family, one radio for everybody. It's old enough to operate them. You don't need one for your two-month-old infant, folks. Can't pull it off, right? And maybe one extra uh, as a redundancy and as if you actually have someone else that comes into the situation uh, that can be of use and help to you. Uh, the next one, I want you to build a basic documentation package. And I've talked about this at length. I've done entire shows on it. It may be one of the most important things you can do for your survival. And when I talk about it that way, I talk about maps from Google Maps. Three, three routes to three locations if you have to evacuate. Every single person you know or may want to know in the middle of a disaster. Every company you might have to call for uh, doing work for you during a cleanup. Hotel reservation numbers. Everything you could possibly need from the personal to the impersonal. I want you to do that. You know what I want you to do first? The name, phone number, email, pager number, if anybody still has one, cell phone number, Skype, contact information for every person you might need to get in touch with. Like an address book. And that's really the basics. Okay, At least go that far. I think you'll find yourself easily going further after that. But that's the basics. Um, and a family roster, 
And maybe you need to, and this is something I hadn't done with my advanced documentation package, but maybe it's something that would make a lot of sense, is a basic roster of where the family is at certain times. You know, school, work, uh, after hours activities, because here's the thing. It might, you might think, hey, look, I know that my wife goes to play bridge with her friends on Wednesday evenings. When the world's coming to an end, you may not be able to remember it's Wednesday. So a basic documentation package with how everybody's going to get back together, where everybody's at, everybody's contact information, and, you know, on the evacuation, if you're not ready to go three locations, three routes, pick one location and, and three routes. And go to Google Maps and, and find three ways to get from where you are to that place. Because you may have to leave someday. Make sure that documentation package is in duplicate, triplicate, quadruplet, whatever number it takes so that every person that can read in the family and uh, has the ability to move themselves around uh, can uh, can have a copy. Make sure they're all the same. This is why I think you should do them on a computer. If you're worried about any sensitive encryption or any sensitive information, use some basic encryption, some very basic things you can do, like a two-off encryption. That would mean if a, if a, if a number was one, two, three, you would change if it was a positive two encryption uh, to three, four, five. Adding two to each number, most criminals are never going to figure that out. And as long as you're consistent with it, you know, we're not talking about the army not breaking your code here. We're talking about the douchebag identity theft guy stealing your stealing your stuff. And when he goes and tries to use the wrong number, he's probably going to get caught. Above all, just make sure you have in place a basic documentation package. You can be as elaborate as you want. Uh, if you go type documentation package into the search box of the survivalpodcast.com, you'll get entire episodes on how to build a proper one. But you got to have at least the basic ability to get in touch with everybody uh, after a disaster. It can be the one thing that pulls uh, families back together in trying tough situations. Things you think you, remember, you will remember, you won't under stress. The next thing I want you to do, and this is the first one that's going to sound like true survivalist survivalism, but I want you to do it anyway. Um, once you get pretty well squared away with the basics, I want you to get a 30-day supply of commercial long-term storage food for your household, which means if you have mom, dad, brother, and sister, that's for four people. And when I say commercial long-term storage, I'm not talking about your bins. I'm not talking about rice and beans. I'm talking about going to a company like Mountain House, providing pantry, someone like that. And you can buy that stuff through people uh, like our sponsors, like uh, Safe Castle Royal and Ready Made Resources. And maybe not doing it all in a day, but over time building up a supply of actual freeze-dried, long-term, 20-year lifespan, storable food, a 30-day supply of that stuff. Why? Because you can put it away somewhere and forget about it, and it will always be there to bail you out. If you fall off the wagon and stop managing your pantry and your storables properly, um, you'll still have 30 days that's available to you. It won't take up too much space like doing a year. If you want to do a year, I have no problem with that. I'm just saying 30 days is a minimum. Again, we're talking simple, basic steps here. And since it doesn't take up a lot of space, you won't feel compelled one day, to, like maybe we're not really going to need this and ever get rid of it. Uh, and since it lasts so daggone long and it's designed for that purpose, you know you can depend on it to be there for you for a long damn time. And it will be tremendously reassuring. And if you've built your pantry the way I say, you have a minimum of 30 days out of your pantry. And then you have 30 days in that bin. And what does that mean? It means you can go two months with the food in your home. 
and you'll be better prepared than 99% of America, and you'll be prepared to get through 99.5% of all disasters that would ever require you to have to feed yourself, including something as mundane as unemployment. If you can feed yourself for 60 days, you can keep the lights on and the roof over your head, you can probably find a new job without a lot of stress uh, or some new source of income. If you have to really worry about those, you'll spend so much time worrying about that that it'll be hard for you to do what you need to do to get back on your feet. And if it's a big catastrophe, the situation is even more critical. So I really think that everybody should have at least a 30-day supply of commercial long-term storables. It doesn't have to be step one. It probably shouldn't be step one, and your, your reluctant spouse is probably never going to see the value of it, at least short term. So put it down the road a little bit. Get that pantry squared away first. But once you do that, you'll be surprised at how much better you're going to feel about things, especially when things start to ramp up in the news a bit, and we wonder, hey, is this one really going to melt down? Next, I, uh, I want you to uh, learn at least two methods of food storage. Dehydration, canning, flash freezing, smoking, salting, I don't care what it is. I want you to learn at least two methods where you can take fresh food and make it storable. Uh, even flash freezing is okay. That's why I said two, though. Because then you're, if, you, if, you, it's only, if it's two, you're going to have to come up with one that can create food that can be stored without electricity. If you do that, all of a sudden you'll start to see opportunities that we'll talk about here in a little bit. And that starts out with next step. Find a local farmer's market and visit often. I want you to learn about seasonal opportunities. You're going to find out that maybe green beans grow like crazy in your area and that at a certain time of year you can go buy them for 49 cents a pound. And if you have a food storage uh, capability because you know how to create them, all of a sudden you get the ability to store 25 pounds of green beans and you're out, what, 12.50? Plus your time, hell, you might as well do 50 pounds, right? You go to, yeah, you see the farmer market, the guy, yeah, they're 49 cents a pound. Yeah, I want 50 pounds. The guy gives you like 42 pounds. It's like, wow, man, I'm out. <laughs> But you go home and throw them in a dehydrator or can them or what have you, and all of a sudden you have this a tremendous redundancy of storage based on a seasonal opportunity. If you don't learn the storage methods and if you don't find local farmer's market, it's not going to happen. You don't find that generally in a grocery store. You don't find it in sufficient quantity. If you find a big farmer's market, you may go to several booths to stock up on something when you're ready to do preservation on it. Uh, you'll also get opportunities like this. I, I buy what I call bruiser tomatoes. Bruisers are when like they take this big basket of tomatoes, and if they were all fresh, beautiful tomatoes, they would sell for, I don't know, 20 bucks worth of tomatoes, and they're on sale for like $3.50. Because they're a little bit overripe, they have some cracks in them, they have some bruising on them. Well, guess what? If I'm canning tomatoes for tomato sauce, I don't care. That's not going to affect what I'm doing one bit. If I'm dehydrating them to be used in soups and stews, I don't care. Maybe when I go to cut this tomato up, I cut that bruise off or I cut that mark off, throw that piece away. I cut the rest up and I throw it in a dehydrator. I don't care. And now I can leverage 10 to 1 on cost. Eight to one on cost, something in that nature, to put away stored food by using seasonal opportunities for my farmer's market. And all of a sudden, what looked like an expense being prepared becomes yet another way to save money and to reduce expense. Isn't that cool? I also want you to realize that you're going to need to learn how to be creative. So what I want you to do is give yourself a fun assignment. I want you to learn how to cook five things that not only have you never cooked before, you've never eaten before. You might have to do some research if you're like me. I mean, that's a, that's a big challenge for me. I've pretty much eaten anything anybody's ever put in front of me at least once to try it. 
But I want you to learn how to cook five things you've never cooked before, and I want you to use as many storable items in the cooking as you can. Okay? So maybe it involves going to a few restaurants and trying some things first and say, I'm going to find what I like, and then I'm going to learn how to cook it. I don't know what it is for you. It's up to you, but that's an assignment. You know, like they say on the funniest videos, Assignment America, right? Five things you've never eaten before. Not only do I want you to try them, I want you to learn how to cook them. And if you have to try ten to find five you like and then learn how to cook those five things, do it. Because you will learn how puzzle pieces fit together with cooking that you never thought of before. And the time to get creative is today so you're prepared for tomorrow, not tomorrow when you're kind of in a bad situation and you're trying to think, how can I make this situation a little bit better? And I'll tell you what, cooking will be a valuable skill in a shit-at-the-fan scenario. And I'll tell you, I'll put it to you this way. You know who everybody was nice to in the military? Everybody was nice to two people. Supply, the supply sergeant, right? Because the guy you had to go get stuff from, and the cooks. Everybody was nice to the cooks. There's a reason. They say an army marches on its stomach, well, so do you. So learn how to cook five things you've never cooked before. You'll enjoy it. It'll be fun. Do it with your reluctant spouse. It's probably something that you will enjoy doing together. Um, next, I want you to store a reasonable amount of COA. What is COA? Charlie Oscar Alpha Cash on Hand. I want you to have some cash in the house. This is a part, remember I said to cut some expenses, put the extra money in a jar? That's slush fund money. I want you to consciously have a minimum, and it might take you a while to do this because some people don't have $500 extra in their checking account, but a minimum of $500, and a couple thousand isn't a bad idea. You might think, where the hell am I going to get that money? Do all the things I talk about, you'll have surplus cash at some point. You'll be one of the people emailing me going, uh, now that I paid off my debt and uh, I'm doing this and that, I have all this money and I don't know what to invest it in. And many times I say, just keep it. Right now I don't know what to do because it's dangerous out there. Cash is king right now. There'll be opportunities in the future. Things will get clearer for now. Just hold on to it. You'll become that person. Saving a couple thousand dollars in cash won't be as hard as you think it is. As soon as there's no credit card debt, there's no car payment, and the only debt in that, 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 that exists is the house payment, and even seven years into that, that's probably gone if you're living that way. All of a sudden, you know, low income becomes high reserve, believe it or not. But I want you to have some cash on hand. There's plenty of short-term disaster situations where you can't get the cash. I've been in several myself. They've involved power outages generally. So uh, stores can't take credit cards or debit cards. The credit card machine doesn't work. Everybody hits them and they're tapped out. Um, really a good idea to have some cash on hand. And I probably should have included BOA in this too. Uh, what did I say COA for? COH. Charlie Oscar Hotel, right? What the hell is A? Why did I put that in my notes, folks? I don't know, man. Like I said, I did three shows yesterday because my brain scrambled. I want you to have C-O-H, cash on hand, and you should probably have some B-O-H, too. That's beer on hand. Even if you don't drink, store a few cases of beer. When you go into barter with your neighbors to get things done, like you're hurt or you don't have your chainsaw or it's not working, you need a tree out of your yard, a six-pack or a 12-pack of beer will get that done before a $20 bill promise you it's happened numerous times in the, the uh, hurricane zone so cash on hand and beer on hand and please forgive me for saying COA when I meant COH I don't know what's wrong with me uh, that brings us up to step 21 which is a bonus because I said there were 20 and I think it's very very important uh, that you take this really seriously now step 21 is probably should be step one 
but I saved it for the end because I like to end with things that maybe strike you and hit home and really build a sense of urgency under you. This is the most important thing that I think that you can do for yourself as a survivalist, as a prepper, as a homesteader, as anything that's concerned with your future. You need to affirm your right and your responsibility to survive. Let me say that again. I want you to affirm your right and responsibility to survive. I want you. I want to ask how many people out there that have been preppers for a long time, that have throughout their lives always thought about these things, that maybe have done, you know, 15 of the 20 or more of the things I listed today, but have never actually stated to themselves affirmatively, I have a right and responsibility to survive. If you've never done that, even if you're somewhere where you can't because people think you're crazy, I want you to, in your head, verbalize that for yourself right now. I have a right and responsibility to survive. And if you doubt that, look at someone you care about, look at someone you love, and ask yourself, if I don't have the right and responsibility to survive, who's going to take care of them if I'm gone? And that will drive it home for you. I think people struggle with the concept of them having a right to something when it comes right down to it. I think there's a lot of the entitlement generation out there that thinks they have a right to this and a right to that. What they mean is they should be given stuff. But I think people that really think, that have some maturity in them, because they don't want to be selfish, often struggle with the concept that they have a right to something. Being Having a right to something and being entitled to it are entirely different concepts. Having a right to something means that you have a responsibility that goes along concurrently with it. An entitlement means that it should be given to you no matter what you do. So if you have an entitlement to survive, that means that people should surround you and protect you. You know, like your own security force. And you should be fed if you run out of food, and you should be given water if you run out of water. Okay? There is no such thing as a right without a, a concurrent responsibility. And that's why it's a right and a responsibility to survive. You're responsible for your survival, and you have a right to it. And you're responsible to the people that you take care of to make sure that you enact your right. I don't know how many parents I've heard say, I'd give my life for my children. Nice sentiment. Nice sentiment. Who's going to take care of them when you're gone? And I know what you mean, but do you know what you mean? When you say that, have you examined it? Do you understand that your responsibility is first to yourself? Because if you're not here, then what? Now, let's not go to extremes and not understand this concept, because it's pretty simple. But just to make sure no one doesn't get that, your kid is standing in the middle of a road. A car is about to run them over. If you don't act, they will get killed. There is no doubt. Do you throw them out of the way of the street and hope you don't get killed and get out of the way? And if you do so, be it, you've given your life for your child. Yes, that is that is what I would do. I would probably do that for a stranger, let alone a, a child of mine or someone I cared about. I would almost always take that risk if there was any chance that I could get them out of danger. But when people say it and they reinforce it mentally without thinking it through, they set a prophecy for themselves, a self-fulfilling one, that puts them into a place of undue sacrifice over and over and over again to a point where they're not really taking care of themselves. And if you don't take care of yourself, and you don't care for yourself, you cannot take care of others. The worst parent you can have as a child is one that hates themselves. 
one that has self-loathing. And many Americans walk around without that extreme version of that, but a little bit of it, where they don't value themselves enough. They don't like themselves enough. They don't feel responsible enough for themselves. They always feel that someone else deserves more. Well, when it comes down to your survival, you deserve it, you have a right to it, and you have a concurrent responsibility to see to it. And if you don't understand that, you will not make it. And the sad thing is the people you're willing to lay down your life for probably won't make it either because you won't be there to lead them, help them, and be part of a team. That's really the most valuable thing that I can tell you. That your right to survival comes with a responsibility both to yourself and to those that you care about. And the two things cannot be separated from each other. There are extreme points in a person's life where they have to make a decision to take a risk so that someone else might be safe or live. And when that's done, it's, it's valorous. It's wonderful. It's one of the things that gives me faith in my fellow man. But it is the exception, not the rule. It is the last-ditch effort because you have no other choice. As long as there is choice, your choice should be to survive. Because the person with that will has an infectious will that spreads to others. and can be the difference between a lot of people making it or a lot of people not making it. So affirm your right and responsibility to survive. Believe that that is a noble thing to have and believe that you're worthy of it and spread it like an infection to everyone you care about and to everyone you meet in some small way. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares